Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com slash easter24. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Listening to the Russell Moore Show, brought to you by the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today. And every week here we explore conversations and questions from a Christian perspective. This week is a question show where I respond to some of the questions that you all have submitted about all sorts of topics. And before we get started, I want to uh, ask you to send me your questions uh, at questions at russellmore.com. Uh, I won't use your name unless you ask me to. And um, it can be about uh, anything that's uh, on your mind that you're grappling with right now. One of the questions that I received uh, quite, um, quite several of these questions is about uh, January the 6th. And uh, people who are saying, I'm, I'm trying to figure out why in my church or in my uh, ministry or in my neighborhood or wherever the person is, why they, why January the 6th insurrection at the one year anniversary, why it seems to have um, evaporated. No, no one is even uh, talking about it. Or you will have people saying, well, uh, it's, it's just, uh, Christianity doesn't have anything to do with this and, uh, you're, you're, uh, or the media is making too much of, uh, too much of this event. I want to tell you, I am really angry about what happened in the attack on the United States Capitol on January the 6th. And I am really angry about people in my own evangelical Christian tradition who would have never for a minute stood for uh, someone saying, well, September 11th was not good, but you have to understand the frustration that uh, people are feeling in Afghanistan and in the Muslim world because of the Persian Gulf War or because of whatever uh, list of grievances uh, are there. We would have all rightly condemned that as moral relativism and would have rightly said that there is no excuse at all for a terrorist attack on the World Trade Center, for the compromising of uh, ethics and for the destruction of innocent human life. 
How can we do that with an insurrectionist attack on the United States Capitol, especially when one of the problems that we have right now is this uh, use of Christianity in order to justify these horrific things? I mean, this is fueling not just the secularization of the culture, but the paganization of the church. And by pagan, I am not referring to what C.S. Lewis uh, meant when he talked about um, the mythic understanding, the storytelling understanding of the pagan world. I'm referring instead to the darkest aspects of power as a means of justifying what is right. And this sense of declaring everything to be a state of emergency so that uh, one can claim desperate times call for desperate measures. People, we're not just on the precipice of violence. We have already seen it. And if it is true that this is just a, a prelude to something else, have we not have we not seen how uh, one sears over the conscience so what i would say to you those of you who are really frustrated about this as i am is to understand that jesus warned us that such times would come and not to be easily shaken and not to be easily shaken either in terms of fear and withdrawal, nor to be easily shaken in terms of a fear that leads to accommodation. Let's remember who we are and let's stand. All right, we have questions that have come in. First one is from Emily, who is writing and saying, Dr. Moore, are reading lineages necessary? The first, when I, I saw this, I thought maybe she meant Ancestry.com, that sort of thing. Like, no, it's not necessary at all. But she goes on to say, I understand that if it's in Scripture, we should be reading them. Uh, so she's referring to genealogies, lists of so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so was the son of so-and-so. Uh, I should be reading them, but to be frank, I struggle with focus and attention from reading them. That's a terrible excuse, but it's an honest one. Okay. Well, Emily, what I would say is a couple things. I mean, first of them, but the first thing I would say is that all scripture is breathed out by God, uh, the Holy Spirit says through Paul, and therefore is profitable. Uh, so that means that there isn't any part of Scripture that one can say, well, this this part isn't really important. This part really doesn't matter to us. Um, I heard uh, years ago someone talk about being in a church where the pastor came to a genealogy and just said, yada, yada, yada. And this person said, you get yada, 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 the Bible. And that's true enough. Every part of Scripture has a purpose. And you can see in people who uh, understand how to teach uh, these things well, uh, you can see the, the way that genealogies are uh, applied to the people of God. Uh, look at, for instance, the genealogies of Jesus. There, There is so much in the genealogies of Jesus in, in Matthew and Luke um, in, in multiple different ways. I mean, some people will take those genealogies and point out how you don't have this aristocratic, 
um, uh, flawless sort of Instagram ready uh, genealogy, that there are people included in the genealogies of Jesus who are um, not reputable at all. There, there's a lot to be found in that. Uh, there's, of course, uh, much to be found in seeing how uh, Jesus is traced back to David, back to Abraham, back to Adam, and how, fu- how he fulfills uh, all of those things. Uh, there's, uh, there's, uh, I have always been struck by the fact that in Matthew's uh, genealogy, the lineage uh, of David, demonstrating how Jesus is the son of David, comes through Joseph. And the reason I think this is important is because Joseph is, of course, not the biological father of Jesus. And yet, through adoption, he is the father of Jesus. And so, uh, Joseph, Joseph's fatherhood here is one of the things that, uh, that really struck me as showing that adoptive fatherhood, adoptive parenthood is real. Something that we need to know when we're thinking about the spiritual arena, when we come into Romans 8 and Galatians 4 and other places. When you look at, uh, for instance, the genealogies also in, say, Genesis, uh, one of the most important things there is not just the uh, begat, uh, but also the and he died. I mean, the the genealogies are showing that uh, th- that there's God keeping his promise you will be fruitful and you will multiply. And you have that uh, warning that comes from God in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die because all of them are dying. So in one sense, the genealogies are showing that uh, God keeps his promises, life goes on, generations go forward, and uh, showing that there is no way for human beings to reproduce themselves out of uh, this trouble. That uh, that's that's one of the reasons why it's so magnificent that we have uh, our Messiah being born of a virgin. The will of the man, the will of man, the will of the flesh could not uh, accomplish that. So all of those things are important and vital. That said, if you're talking about Emily, your reading of Scripture, uh, let's just let's just step back a minute from the reading of scripture for the rest of your life. And let's just deal with your reading of scripture right now. And so you're saying, I'm having uh, some trouble focusing when I'm coming to, to this these particular parts. Okay, skip them for now. That doesn't mean that you have to skip them forever, but it means that maybe you need to be starting in a place where your attention can be more easily held but then work on your attention uh, to to the point that you can you, you can uh, read those passages of scripture, and so I, I would feel no guilt about that. There's there's a, a mandate to spend time in scripture. There is no mandate for you to spend a particular day in a particular place. So uh, I, I would say don't feel guilty about that. I think if anything, you are in a good place because you recognize where your attention is held and where it is not. So um, I say, just read the Bible, go forward from there. Uh, I have a message that is coming in, a question that is coming in from Christine, who is um, working in campus ministry, and this is what she says. I am currently discerning how I can use or disengage from social media in the healthiest way for me right now. I work with college students 
and my colleagues have focused in on the generational shift with Gen Z. I find myself surprisingly annoyed at the mindset changes and ministry philosophies being suggested to reach them. I'm at once resentful of the requirement to present myself publicly online and at the same time envisioning how I could build a a niche audience on Instagram and freely share my thoughts. I need to formulate a better question for you about this, but I'd love to hear how you handle the challenges that come with speaking publicly. I have a hunch that the average Christian will only increasingly be needing to cope and thrive in this dynamic. So it sounds like for Christine, what uh, she's grappling with is a campus ministry where uh, the leaders or or maybe just the the peer pressure with other campus ministers are saying you have to be on social media in order to uh, reach Generation Z. Uh, To some degree, of course, that's true. Uh, Social media is media right now. And uh, there are all sorts of ways in which in order to uh, shepherd and, and reach those students, you have to go where they are, and, and that includes social media. That doesn't, though, necessarily mean what it sounds like uh, Christine is asking about putting herself publicly out there. Um, I, I doubt that there's a requirement in that campus ministry to be um, fully transparent on social media or even to overstep one's own boundaries in terms of sharing one's life on social media. So I think there's probably a way that you can do this, uh, Christine. But I understand what you're saying when you say you're trying to grapple with how, how much of this is healthy for you. Because I think that's one of the big problems facing uh, all of us right now is how do we uh, operate in a social media space without those damaging aspects of social media? Constant connectedness, uh, envy uh, for some people when they're looking at other people's feeds, anxiety and uh, and fear uh, and so forth is there. And I think the way that you do that is to say, what is the Uh, What are the ways that I can function on social media with a minimum of those things and concentrate on those aspects of social media? I mean, you can't operate in every social media space uh, anyway. Uh, There are going to be certain ones that you spend time on. And so it might be if you're somebody who says, well, Instagram leads to body image issues or to uh, envy uh, issues for you, then concentrate in some other aspect of social media and don't use uh, Instagram. If you say, well, Twitter is something that causes a great deal of anxiety because of the trolling and the attacking and the uh, sense in which it's just a sphere for argumentation, well, then go to Instagram. I mean, here's the way uh, I found that what was happening with social media uh, was a couple of things were going on for me that I found not to be healthy. Uh, I have a Twitter account and I'm on Twitter, but I used to be on Twitter a lot. Um, I think I think my Twitter account um, was created in 2008. 
And I was on that all the time from 2008 until about 2018 or, or so. And one of the things that I found is that I was getting an unreal uh, picture of the world. So I was finding myself unable to distinguish between what Thomas Merton called events and pseudo events. And I would find that when I took a break from Twitter, I actually was better informed than when I was on it. And I also found that it was starting to do something to my attention span where it was harder and harder for me to spend uh, long periods of time in deep concentration. And so I pulled back from that. Uh, I didn't go off of Twitter. Instead, what I decided to do was to, um, first of all, to filter out what I can see. So right now I can only see at replies from people that I follow. So I have a great deal of control over that. I, I choose who I follow and they're the people that I uh, like to hear from. And the other thing is that I, uh, I've sort of listened to the counsel that one of my uh, colleagues, our church, uh, Ray Ortland, has suggested, which is don't put Twitter on your phone, put it on your laptop. Because you're, you're by definition not going to be checking it as much. You're not going to check it when you're in the, when you're bored, when you're in the line at the grocery store and so forth. But the other thing is that I really, uh, I really put a lot more energy into Instagram. And I see those as being two very different things. So Twitter is the place to, uh, come in and announce what somebody, what you believe and to argue with other people. That doesn't really uh, appeal to me, but I'll engage in it uh, to the degree that I need to. Instagram is not like that. And so I have a kind of zero tolerance policy. I don't block anybody on Twitter because I don't see trollish things on Twitter. But somebody who comes onto Instagram wanting to, say, argue politics or uh, engage in some sort of trolling behavior. I, I don't have any qualms about blocking that person. So you're just trying to figure out what, what is the best space for you. Now, if what you say is, I am just not the sort of person who can use social media at all. Um, okay. Well, then I think you should be honest about that with the people in your campus ministry and see if there are other ways that you can engage, uh, with your students. And there may be. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I, I think there are ways that you can sort of through trial and error uh, use social media. So that would be my counsel. have a question that came in from Amy, and Amy says uh, this. She says that she doesn't have any conscience problems with sterilization, tubal ligation, uh, vasectomies and so forth. She says both she and her husband have clear consciences about this. She has some health uh, troubles and she's in her 40s. It's not, uh, would not be good for her uh, to be uh, pregnant. And so she doesn't, she doesn't see any problems with that. So let's just put that in abeyance for a moment. There are going to be some Christians who are going to have conscience problems with sterilization of any kind and at any point. We understand that, that, that there will be disagreements here. But her question is really about this. 
She said, I'm wondering if it would be, uh, she says that she, even if her husband were to die, and this sort of took me by, I wasn't expecting the storyline to shift to her husband dying. But even if he were to die, I don't think it's likely that I would want to bear more children with the new husband. On the other hand, given the inequity of the sexes when it comes to the biological clock, my husband is quote unquote only in his 40s. And if the tables were turned and I died soon and he remarried, maybe he would need to have the option of having more children with his new wife if that was their shared desire. And that's why I lean towards sterilization for me and not for him. Okay, again, her, her question is not about the ethics of sterilization. It's about this question of sorting through who should be the one to receive it. And I, I guess I'm not as much worried, Amy, about your question as I am about where that's coming from. Uh, so if if your husband hasn't said anything about this and you're just imagining that he might like to retain the ability to have uh, future children, I think you should talk to him about that. And I think you might be surprised that that's not really what's what's going through his mind right now. Um, it would worry me, though, if if your husband were the one saying that uh, I want to retain my ability to have children with someone else in the case that you should die. I think that would really warrant a deeper uh, conversation to find out what's going on in, in his mind. And um, you probably just aren't, you probably aren't on, on very different pages. But this is one of those things where I think sometimes in a marriage, especially when it has to do with those kinds of questions, what would happen if I were to die or if you were to die? We don't really like to talk about those things. I have um, told Maria often, uh, if I die before you, which I expect to, but if I die before you, I want you to remarry. And I don't want to have been your only husband. I just want to have been your favorite. And so as long as I'm as long as I'm your favorite, uh, then you can have a, a number two husband. That's fine with me. And I'm sure it sounds like that's your attitude with your husband. And I'll bet that's his attitude with you. So talk to him about it. We'll take a quick break and we will come back to talk about hell and funerals and a number of other questions in just a minute here on The Russell Moore Show. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead. 
or donate, visit UGM.org. Ashley here. If you're looking for another podcast that features inspiring conversations with religious leaders, authors, and artists, then I recommend listening to the acclaimed podcast, No Small Endeavor. Produced by Great Feelings Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like award-winning journalist and best-selling author Tim Alberta and civil rights hero Reverend James Lawson to ask what it means to live a life worth living. You can even hear from Russell Moore on No Small Endeavor. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times best-selling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Welcome back to the Russell Moore Show, taking your questions. And we have a uh, question from Rhea. And Rhea says, to write a complete stranger with an intense theological question is perhaps a sign of desperation, but so be it. I don't think it's a sign of desperation. Uh, I I think think, uh, in some ways there's a sense of uh, freedom in asking a question to somebody that you know you're not going to see every day. You don't have to worry about judgment. And so forth. So that doesn't, that's not a sign of desperation, I don't think. But this person, uh, Rhea, says that she grew up in a thoroughly indoctrinated, uh, very fundamentalist pastor's home. And uh, she says this was very Calvinistic in theology and heavily separatist in practice. Translated, she says, we were not allowed to wear pants at all. Uh, and uh, one one time I referenced this sort of a world, and someone assumed that this meant that this meant that people walked around like you know Donald Duck or or, or uh, uh, some cartoon character wearing no pants, and wondered what sort of a bizarre sex cult this could be. No, no, no. This is women weren't wearing pants; they were wearing dresses, skirts, culottes. If you know what that is, if you grew up in this world, uh, that's what she means. No pants at all. No makeup. Heavily disciplined, homeschooled, etc. We had daily devotions and church four times a week, and and we wore head coverings each time. I left that church a long time ago, uh, and my husband and I are now in an Orthodox uh, Anglican church, which we love. Um, My breaking point internally, Rhea uh, Rhea says, came earlier this year when my mom passed away after a long battle with cancer, cancer, and her sermon, um, the sermon that was preached at her funeral, was a hair-raising, hellfire, and damnation type of sermon. I have two unsaved siblings, uh, and as you can imagine, this does nothing but ostracize them from God further. I was so angry, I almost cried. And then Rhea goes on to say, to be frank, I don't know who God is anymore. If he is the God my parents believed in, I'm really sad and scared. And the resources and books, though, that seem to deal with leaving fundamentalism quickly go toward progressive Christianity, uh, which she says, Rhea says she doesn't think that's right either. So she's trying to figure out what is coming from the indoctrination that she received from her parents 
and 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 what is is real. And she says the problem is I can argue everything from the fundamentalist side in my head. And I also see the way Christians behave online, and I don't even know what to think anymore. There's no filter, no kindness, no human decency. So here's my question. Who is God, and how do I figure it out? Rhea, I mean, there there are so many things uh, in this question. And the first thing when it comes to the funeral, um, you know, I have I have seen this play out, and I say this as somebody who believes strongly in the doctrine of hell, believes strongly in judgment day, and someone who has um, has criticized the way that sometimes we come to a funeral and suddenly uh, we we have this almost a doctrine of justification through death alone. So whoever it is that has died, no matter who it is, uh, no matter what sort of life has been lived, it's, well, this person is with Jesus now, this person is with loved ones now, because in, in those cases, the doctrine of heaven becomes not something that we actually believe, but a kind of folk religion that is used just to flatter someone and to, or as a stand-in for, for saying we loved this person when that's, it's much more than that. Having said that, I also have seen those sorts of funerals that you mentioned, where you have people who are coming in and um, proclaiming hellfire and damnation uh, in a a really angry and sort of antagonistic way, which is also not, I think, appropriate for a funeral. What what is a funeral for? A funeral is is to mark the passing of a life. Uh, and also to help the people who are there to grieve. That that requires not some sort of pop universalism. It also uh, doesn't require some sort of um, antagonistic kind of uh, message. And that's especially true, I think, when you're coming out of the situation uh, in which you grew up. I, I completely agree with you. There are uh, many resources that are out there that, uh, that suggest because of the dark aspects of fundamentalism, the only alternative to that is some form of theological liberalism or some form of agnosticism or atheism or something else. And that's, of course, not what you're uh, about and not what I'm about either. And I think that what you have to do is to, there was a statement that Walker Percy made years ago that stays with me all the time when he said, just because Jimmy Swaggart believes that God believes in God does not mean that God does not exist. Now, most people don't remember who Jimmy Swaggart is now, but he was a really, um, angry, uh, hellfire and brimstone slash prosperity gospel uh, Pentecostal evangelists. There, there are uh, those sorts of uh, people that have both of them. I think when people think prosperity gospel, they think of sort of smiley uh, uh, kind of um, possibility thinking kind of uh, people. But but there is a strain of that prosperity gospel that also is uh, angry and and uh, 
yelling and, and fists raised to the sky. Uh, Andy was somebody who was involved in uh, several very public scandals. And so what Percy's point is, using that character of the time, is to say there can be a tendency to look at uh, a defective uh, vision of Christianity and say the answer is the opposite of that. And in some sense, it is the opposite of that. Uh, in, in some sense, what you're finding in theological liberalism or in um, a, a tossing overboard of orthodoxy or a tossing overboard of the gospel is not the opposite uh, of that. It's just another uh, strand of it. What's the opposite of that? It is the gospel as revealed in Jesus Christ. And so I, I think that one of the problems that many people have growing up in some sort of uh, an environment like the one that you grew up in is to have this, this feeling, even if they don't cognitively believe this, but this feeling that God is angry with you and this feeling that what God is really trying to do is to send people to hell. But there's a loophole. You know, something happened on the way to the lake of fire. And if you find that loophole of the gospel, then then you can circumvent it. But that's really what God wants to do. Rather than seeing what the text of Scripture teaches, John 3.17, God did not send the Son into the world in order to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. That's uh, the consistent message of Scripture. Uh, it, it is not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, this is the uh, this is the the plan of God. God loves the world. God wants to see the world uh, be saved. There is a hell. There is a, a judgment. Uh, but God loving you and loving the world. Uh, has has provided a means of reconciliation, and so if you if you sort of see the gospel as being the minor note, uh, the the grace is the minor note, and the judgment as the major note, then you're going to come out with a defective kind of Christianity. If you see the grace as the only note, and there is no judgment, then you don't actually have grace. What you have is not. What, for instance, the Apostle Paul is teaching in Romans 3 about what it means for the love of God and the justice of God, the holiness of God, to come together at the cross so that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what I would say to you, Rhea, is that if you're questioning and if you want to know who is God, I would say go back to John chapter 1 and see the way that God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And then spend some time in the Gospels. Spend some time with Jesus and remind yourself of, uh, of who Jesus is. And realize that behind Jesus is not some Father God that he's holding back, who really wants to who really wants to kill and destroy. Instead, what you have is a father, a son, a Holy Spirit, one God, one purpose, one gospel 
that the God that you see revealed in Jesus, crucified and raised from the dead, that's God. That's God. And he loves you. Spend some time with him. When it comes to what's happening with Christians, yes, there's a a great deal of what's communicated about uh, God from the lives that Christians uh, often lead, especially when we see them all the time online, that communicate something different. But Jesus told us that would be the case. You, You have a responsibility to show the love of Christ, to show the holiness of Christ in your own life as much as possible. You're not able to make sure that there isn't some other message coming from other Christians. Just don't let it throw you. Don't, don't let it throw you, uh, throw you off, off guard. Um, yeah. So that's a, that's a hard one. That's a, that's a heavy one. And Ria, I'm going to be praying for you. And I don't, I'm not saying that just as a statement. I really am because I know that's, uh, I know that's difficult. We have a question from Brad who is a youth pastor, uh, in the Bible belt. And he says that he's getting, or a student pastor, and he says he gets questions a lot from young adults in that city that says, how do we begin a gospel conversation with somebody who doesn't believe the Bible? And I think at this, at the root of this question is an epistemological question. Okay, I'm not going to... Uh, last time somebody used a word like epistemological, I got a lot of complaints from people saying, I don't know what that is, and you didn't define, okay, just how do you know? Uh, just sort of a question about knowing. Uh, about the sources of authority, do we have to find common ground somewhere? And I'd love to know how you unpack this for believers in the Bible Belt. It's one thing to know what the Bible says about X or Y. It's another thing to be biblically fluent in order to communicate. Thanks again for your work. I look forward to the Christianity Today era onward. Well, I actually think that both of those things are true. Do you need to have a common ground uh, with people in order to talk to them? Yes, but I think you already have that. I think that human beings have this awareness of a sense of uh, purpose and meaning. They can't live and operate as human beings without it. They have a sense of judgment and justice, uh, e- even when they don't recognize that that is, um, that that is ultimate, but they have to operate that way uh, uh, it, it, to some degree. Otherwise, uh, they can't live. So you do have some common ground. What I would say is that doesn't mean, though, that you come in and say, well, what are the sources of authority that we agree on? And let's limit our conversation to those things. I don't see that happening in the Bible. It also doesn't mean that you come in and say, well, here's what the Bible says. Uh, just believe it. Uh, any more than, you know, I would have um, back in... Um, not as much here in Nashville, but in Louisville, when we lived there, we would have um, Mormon missionaries who would come by uh, a lot and would uh, come to the door and spend some time talking to me. And often they would say, well, look here in the Book of Mormon, it says this, or look here in the Pearl of Great Price, it says this. I mean, of course, I don't believe in the authority of the Book of Mormon or the Pearl of Great Price or the Doctrines and Covenants or, or these other um, these other scriptures, Mormon scriptures. And so 
it, it, it that isn't a compelling argument uh, to me. But when you're dealing with the scripture, what you're dealing with is not just an authority in the way that we tend to think about authorities. What you also have is an a living and active voice of God. So one of the things that you're wanting to do is to uh, speak from the scriptures, recognizing that the people you're talking to don't necessarily um, don't necessarily accept that authority. And then look at what the apostle Paul is doing in Acts 17. Paul comes in and is at Mars Hill to begin with because he is, uh, the text says, preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, that That's something that is not accepted uh, by the Stoics, the Epicureans, anybody else uh, that's there. He's doing that and he is coming in and showing how that actually answers this, this biblical framework of judgment, of resurrection, of uh, the return of Christ, all of these things. This actually, uh, uh, this actually speaks to longings embedded within the Athenians that he sees uh, within even the, uh, the, the temples that they construct and the poems that they write. And he shows how their own works are not consistent with one another. Uh, the, the temple's not uh, consistent. The, the idea that they could say, well, uh, this God that you're talking about doesn't exist because he's not in our pantheon. Say, well, you have a temple to an unknown God. So you're admitting that there's something about God that you don't know, something about the divine that you don't know. Um, you have written in your own poems, in him we live and, and breathe and have our, live and move and have our being. And so you, you recognize that there is something more than what you're acknowledging right now. And he says, so I want to declare that to you. And so I, I don't think that there's a, a place that you can come to where you would say, okay, here's where we are on completely neutral ground, and I can address you with something other than the story of the gospel as found in the scriptures. Um, uh, you'll see that a lot with people who are uh, appealing to natural law, appealing to philosophical concepts and, and so forth, because they think I can reach people that way, and then they can uh, encounter God in the Bible. I don't think that, I don't think that works. I think instead... You, you show people Christ as revealed in Scripture. You answer their questions, uh, but you keep getting them to the text of Scripture and pointing them to this Jesus who says, come and see. And so I, I think that to some degree or the other, you're doing the same thing whether you're in Birmingham or Bali. I think, I think you're doing the same thing if you're in Jackson, Mississippi, or if you're in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, in that respect. Now, what you're having to do in a heavily, quote-unquote, Christianized place is clear a lot of brush of uh, people who assume that they know this stuff in order to say, no, 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 you actually don't know. This actually is stranger than you think. And when you're dealing with people who don't have any concept of Christianity or the gospel, what you're coming in is saying, actually, there's a part of you that knows this is true. And, and let me show you how the things that you long for, the things that you fear, the things that you're holding back, 
all of that actually is addressed in the God who has revealed himself to Abraham and David and ultimately uh, in Jesus Christ. I think that's the way to go. Uh, so we have a question that is then coming in from Cheryl about climate change. And Cheryl says, lately I'm wondering what you can share about a Christian perspective of the cataclysmic floods, fires, droughts that are being experienced over the whole world. Everything I read says that this is climate change produced and it will only get worse. As a believer, I know God is in control, yet I feel a responsibility to preserve what can be. I just canceled trip reservations for this fall, and we were going to see sequoias in Yosemite, but the fires and drought made me think that was an, an unnecessary burden on the area's resources. The hosts I have contacted about the changes are resentful. If everyone felt like you all, uh, all of us would go out of business, they say. So now I feel guilty about that. Uh, what can we do? I don't expect a solution, but an outlook wiser than the one that I have would be helpful. Well, Cheryl, I guess I guess my response to that would be to say, like so many other things, there are a number of ways that we can run aground here. I mean, one of those ways is the sort of denial that there's anything going on. Um, you can see that and people will say, well, there, there is no climate change or climate change is just natural and it will just uh, correct itself. Uh, we, we know, uh, we don't know that all of the things that you mentioned are necessarily climate change caused, but we do know that climate change is happening and we, well, there's a scientific consensus about how that's uh, taking place. Where there's not as much of a consensus is how do we fix it? Um, and, and that's why you have healthy debate going on. Is capping carbon uh, the way to do this? If so, what do you do about uh, China and India if they won't uh, participate in, in that? Is nuclear energy uh, the way to address this? If it is, um, then what do you do about the, the waste uh, component. I mean, th there are there are a lot of questions. Some people uh, to say, well, technologically we have to innovate our way around this. But what do we do until then? I mean, there, there, are, there are a lot of important conversations going on. I think for you as an individual, um, the, the ways that you could run aground would be a kind of cynicism that says, well, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. And it's not going to, um, it's not going to Ultimately, the worst aspects of this are not going to happen during my lifetime, so why should I care about it? That's not a Christian view of cultivation and of stewardship and of handing something down to one's children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, to the generations to come. The other could be this sort of paralysis that says I'm, I'm paralyzed in a kind of fear and you can see that with people who will say, well, if I think about what the future is going to look like, there are a lot of really scary scenarios. So I don't even know uh, whether I should um, have a family or whether or not there should be another uh, generation. I think that's a wrong response, too. Uh, I, I think instead what we what we see is that we have responsibilities, Genesis 1 and 2 responsibilities to cultivate. And 
we have an understanding of a a God who is ultimately uh, sovereign. Now, both the responsibility and the sovereignty, they're both important here uh, in the way that if you, for instance, say, well, I've got a, a plot of land out there and, uh, you know, it's got weeds all in it, but God's in control then you don't really have an understanding of how agriculture works and how the the cultural mandate works. You are called to cultivate that field. And Isaiah says that the understanding of how seeds work and how watering works and how um, tilling works, all these things, this too comes from the Lord, who is excellent in wisdom and in counsel. Uh, At the same time, you have to understand that nothing comes from the earth uh, apart from the hand of God. And so the, the rain that comes from the heavens, the, uh, the soil uh, in the earth, all of those things, the, the bread that ultimately results from that is in response to our prayer, Lord, give us our daily bread. So you have to have both of those understandings. When it comes to canceling plans and, and, and so forth, I don't know that you should feel guilty about that one way or the other. I mean, I, I think if my hosts could accommodate it, I would still have gone uh, on the trip uh, that you're talking about. That said, if you were uncomfortable doing it and you took care of the people that were going to be hosting you, I'd, I don't think I would feel guilty about that either. I would just say don't be, don't be paralyzed in, in any direction here. All right. What's your question? Send to me. Send it at questions at russellmore.com. I'll do my best to answer it. And I'd like to ask you to be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or um, Outcast or is Outcast? Overcast. Sorry. Uh, uh, <laughs> I've got Outcasts on the brain, I guess. Uh, Pocket Cast or wherever you listen, leave a review. It helps people uh, to find us. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap the cover art and you'll find the show notes with some resources uh, for you and send it along to a friend who might be interested in uh, some of the questions we talked about today. And while you're at it, check out Christianity Today global media company founded by Billy Graham and speaking out across the world, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can click the cover art to find out how you can have a trial membership to see what we're all about. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to the Christianity Today Public Theology Project's Russell Moore Show. Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer. Russell Moore is the executive producer and host. Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Production assistance by Cormedia. Beth Gravencourt serves as coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer. Audio mixing on today's episode by Kevin Duthu. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. Administration for Christianity Today by Christine Kolb and Pam Vodanova. If you like what you heard on today's episode, make sure you subscribe to catch the upcoming episodes.